turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. This morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Let's ask God's blessing on His Word. Father, we're so thankful and we praise You because You give us what we need. You treat us as a father treating a son whom He loves. You discipline us. You correct us. You guide us, you direct us, you lift us up when we fall down, you feed us and nourish us, you sustain us, you're with us, and even now, O Lord, here we are before you, with your word open before us, and we look to you to feed, to strengthen, to help, to instruct, to correct, to fill us with your wisdom. Be merciful this morning, O Lord, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, this morning's passage in Luke chapter 10... Man, I don't lose my voice. It reveals a lot of exciting things. Things about our, our mission in this world. You ever wonder what our mission in this world is? You ever get lost throughout the week? Get caught up in life? Life just kind of grabs you by the neck. You're just doing life, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, what's the point? What's the purpose? Why are we here? What should we be doing? Well, really, there's so much here in this passage this morning that really does unfold for us what our purpose in life really is, what Jesus came to do, and how we, in relationship with him, have a mission and a purpose in him that transcends the mundane aspects of life. We see here Jesus greatly expanding his ministry for the first time in a, in a, in a broad, radical way, along with the need for more workers in this mission. And then he gives the, his disciples the strategy for them to see success in this mission. And then he goes on to finalize or how it is, uh, rather, how it is he's going to finalize everything. How his mission is actually going to be fully complete in the end. It's really what we have here in this text before us. And there are several ramifications for us today, because we are a part of what Jesus is doing. And we just have to see that and understand our place in that and join him in that. Even though, you know, we're 2,000 plus years removed, we could think that, yeah, that's pretty, this is neat stuff way back then. Well, no, it really applies to us now. We're still a part of the very same mission, as we're going to see shortly here. We're just simply part of a different place in that story and in that mission of what Jesus is doing. So let's begin with and look at how Jesus intends to expand his ministry to the world. The text says in verse 1 of chapter 10 that after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus is now ramping up his ministry, isn't he? Greatly. Up to this point, he's been doing most of the ministry himself. If you recall back in chapter 9, he actually is the first time he sent out to the disciples in uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. He sent, but that time he just sent the 12 out. 
He sent the 12 out. The 12 came back. But now he expands his ministry greatly, significantly. He goes from 12, and now there's 72 he sends out. And he went, so you think of it, from 12 to 72. And it wasn't that long of a period of time. We don't know exactly, but it wasn't that long. That's a large expansion in the campaign, what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus does this because he doesn't have some small mission in mind. Jesus knows that what he's about to do in the world, he must do through his people. His people multiplying, expanding rapidly. Jesus knows that he is going to reign and rule and all authority in heaven and earth is going to be given to him. And he's going to expand his kingdom among the nations until all things in this world are placed under his feet. Here, let's listen to some very explicit, sta- a very explicit statement on this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 through 28. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Did you catch the order of how everything is going to unfold here? It's very explicit, especially at the beginning. It says that Jesus must reign until every enemy is placed under his feet. And the last enemy to be placed under his feet is death. Now, obviously, he's not referring to his own death. What he's referring to is actually the resurrection from the dead of, of all those who have died. And it's speaking, we know he's speaking of the resurrection, and we know he's speaking this way, because just before this, Paul said in verse 23 that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and afterwards, those who are his at his coming. So when Jesus finally finishes it all, the capstone of it all is the resurrection. The last enemy that will be defeated is death. He's already, in a sense, he's already defeated death in his death and resurrection. But when he says it this way, he means that like in the experience of the world for us today, he's the first fruits and afterwards those at his coming. And so that last enemy to be defeated is the resurrection of the dead. And prior to the resurrection of the dead, he says, before this happens, all things must come under his feet. Jesus' conquest is so vast that he tells his disciples in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and disciple the nations. It's going to happen. This is also why Jesus tells his disciples in verse 2 of this particular chapter in Luke 10 that the harvest, we're going to see that the harvest is plentiful. Why is the harvest plentiful? Because Jesus is bringing the nations into his kingdom. So unless Jesus and his disciples are committed to expanding the ministry, there's no way this is ever going to get done. 
The way that Jesus is going to do this is through the commission that he gives. He gives the 72 here this commission to go. And then in Matthew 28, he gives the commission to them to go to the church, to go to the ends of the earth and bring in the nations. This means that the church today, us, we have got to understand the scope of Jesus' mission. Because even though the Christian faith has grown to be the largest religion in the world, it's still, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think you've noticed that. If Jesus must reign until every enemy comes under his feet, then clearly we have a lot of work to do. Therefore, an effective ministry has got to plan for and be thinking about and understand the necessity of continual expansion. A church has got to think in terms of growth, in terms of expanding, thinking outward. Why? That's the mission of Jesus, to bring in the nations. And Jesus' mission is our mission, right? And so if we, we as a church, like ours, if we never get to the point where we're, we're not expanding, or that we're, we're somehow content and satisfied and comfortable just being small and staying the same as we are throughout the years... That's not a good thing. If we do remain small and we do not get committed to and understand and, 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 and have this idea of expansion in mind of what Jesus is doing, then I think we have to make some and take some serious evaluation. Because may God forbid that we ever start to adopt the attitude that we're small because we're so faithful. Oh, we're just, we're just uber faithful. And that, the world is just so wicked. And then we start to quote verses like, Small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. But broad is the road to destruction. That, if that becomes your favorite verse, that's bad. That's really bad. Because if we do that, if that's where our mindset is at, if that's where we get to, then we have for certain become, certain, for certain, have become the frozen chosen, as they like to say. And those people, if that's us, we shouldn't expect anything other than Jesus' judgment. That's what we should expect. Because if you, if you even look at the books of Revelation and he speaks to his church and the church that, you know, even they have different issues. And if that becomes an issue, it needs to be an issue that gets, needs to be addressed. On the flip side, what we should do is, our, in terms of our mentality, if we do get going, if we do understand the mission, we do want to be a part of it, we do want to really want to see expansion, we need to begin to expect, expect Jesus to do great things. And why? Why should we expect him to do great things? Because he's always done great things through his church when she becomes zealous about reaching the lost and extending his kingdom and bringing the nations in. 
Churches that have been committed to this, churches who have prayed for this, churches who have pressed forward in this, have been churches who have seen Jesus do great things through them. This is why expansion and multiplication really needs to be a part of who we are. And whenever we aren't expanding or multiplying, we need to reevaluate and make some changes. And in order to make changes, here's something we can do. Here's a plug for you all. We started this morning discipleship class called Organic Disciple Making. And so let me encourage you all, if you want to be a part of what this means, how do, we, how do we reach the lost family and friends and the people around us in a very natural and organic way? And I would encourage you to come to the class. Because this is really what, this is one of the things we're trying to do. We really need to get equipped so that we're able to go out and extend to be a part of what's going on. So I don't do that to brow whip you and make you feel guilty like you oh no I better go just because he'll know that I wasn't there if you can't come you can't make it you can't make it fine I don't think any less of you please don't let that thought come in your head but if you can please come we'd love to have you there because as Jesus exposes next in this passage folks the need is great If you look at verse 2, Jesus exposes the need here. Verse 2 says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, Jesus knows the size of this job, and he knows what's required. He knows that the nations throughout the world need to hear and come into his kingdom. So he knows that thousands and even millions of workers are needed. This is huge, huge project. There's no way a few can do it. This is why we have to be committed to constantly training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. God gave, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You know, this passage is often quoted by pastors and teachers about their need to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But you can also see here in this passage that evangelists, evangelists are mentioned here. They're part of the list as well. Yet most churches don't have evangelists. And therefore, that's part of the reason why we're not being well-equipped for the work of ministry. Most churches just have a pastor who they think is supposed to do everything. I'm sure glad we hired this guy. Now I can do what I do, and he can go do what he does. He can go do the church stuff. I'll do my stuff. But that's not, that's not the idea here. God gives pastors and teachers... He gives evangelists, and he gives them in the leadership position. He puts them there to equip the saints, to give them what they need, to equip them, to tool them, so they're able to do the work of ministry. And this means, if you look at that, we, really, we, we have a desperate need for evangelism. We need leadership in this area. If we're to fulfill the mission of Jesus that Jesus has given to us, we desperately need the kind of leadership that will allow us to equip the saints to reach the lost. 
And why is that? Well, look, look at it. The, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus says, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly that, that, that God would raise up workers. That God, in, in, in all cases, these workers end up being the leaders. They, the ones that rise up, they model it. They show, show what it's like. They're the ones who can train and can equip as well. And this is precisely why we have asked you, the members of Redeemer, to earnestly pray that God would raise up for us a leader who could come here in this area of evangelism and outreach and lead us and equip the saints. We really need that. We need, it's without the leadership, without the leadership to take this forward, things don't go forward. You need somebody who can carry the ball and lead and train and equip the saints for the work of ministry. Well, so here's the thing. This is the need. So now what should we do about it? We have a great need. If you look at our body, if you look at, say, where we struggle, where we have a problem with, would you agree, would we 100% agree we have a problem with reaching the lost? Yes, you have to agree. Because the evidence proves otherwise. So, there's an issue, right? Now, what do you do about it? What should you do? Well, what did Jesus say to do here? Pray earnestly. So I beg of you all, I do. Body of Redeemer, please, would you please seek the Lord diligently, daily. And here's the word. Jesus, what's the word he uses here? The word earnestly. What does that mean? If you're in earnest, you've got a, a, a really a big desire and a, and a big plea, and you're not giving up on it. You're earnest about it. You're going for it. So please go for it. Please wrestle with God. Please Beseech the Lord and ask him to raise up leaders for us. Especially in this area. Especially in this area. And if we do that, I am absolutely confident that God will raise someone up for us. And why is that? Because our Lord told us what to pray. He tells us how to pray. He, Jesus knows that the harvest is massive. We're talking the nations. And he knows that workers are needed. God has got to raise them up to go into the harvest. So please, would you commit to praying? And not just praying, praying earnestly that God would do this because we desperately need it. After Jesus tells them to pray, he then gives them this strategy for how they are supposed to proceed. And this is helpful because it's, it, it, it gives us wisdom in how a person should proceed, how, how we should go out. And we mentioned this last week. If you looked at verse, look at verse 3 of Luke 10. He says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as a lamb in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, or no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So here they are given 
pattern for how they were to determine where it is that God is at work in people's lives and move forward, whether they should go forward and these people receive or whether they pull back and go somewhere else. Jesus directs them. And if you remember, several weeks back, the beginning of Luke chapter 9, I first introduced this and, and talked about what was going on here and how it's, there's tremendous wisdom in it. These guys were, were given tools. They were equipped. They were equipped with understanding of how it is that they should go forward, especially into area, a cold area, and see, the har- see where the harvest was ready and where it was not. Understand by looking in responses if people are going to be receptive, if God is working in them, they're open to it. So Matthew actually, the, in his gospel, uses a very unique expression which I think gives even more insight as to what's going on here. In Matthew 10, he says that there you will find a person who was worthy. He doesn't use the person of peace. It says a person who was worthy. Where, you know, that's where Luke, what does Luke say? A person of peace. What are you looking for? Luke, Matthew says a, a person, a worthy person. Luke, a person of peace. Now what's going on here? Well, these two expressions are basically the, the two sides of the same coin. And let me explain why. In Matthew, when the expression is used, it doesn't mean one who's worthy of the disciples or of the grace of God or of the gospel or of the kingdom that somehow they're just, they're worthy. And because they're worthy, you can give it to them. As, like some, as if somehow it's, it's merit-based. Like, oh, go find the people who really deserve the gospel. Well, that's contrary to the nature of the gospel. The fact is you're going to people, nobody's worthy of the gospel. That's not what he's referring to. Not only that, who could answer such a question? If you're going into a village or town and they said, hey, are you worthy of the gospel? Are you worthy of the grace of God? They wouldn't even know what you're talking about. They don't know the gospel yet. They don't know what, you're, what you mean. These people are, they don't know that anything about it. They're, they're hoping and longing for the kingdom of God, but they're not, they're not aware of even what they're talking about. What it was um, believed to have mean, meant, that expression, a worthy person. Some scholars said that it referred to a a hospitable person, and one who is very generous and willing and ready to entertain strangers. And this is believed because the same word in the Hebrew language, which signifies to be worthy, is also used in to give alms. So in, in reference to a person, that expression to be worthy in Hebrew is also used in the expression to give alms. It's important to note that a person who gives alms was reckoned by the Jews as a worthy man. So that's, like, in in historical literature, they could see that the Jews recognized someone who was almsgiver as a worthy man. they, They expressed it that way. And now, if you understand it that way, it makes sense with what's going on. Because this person was to be the one who would give them lodging and food as they needed it. So they'd have to be very hospitable, very giving person. That'd be according to their nature. And when, so when it looks, we come back to Luke now, and the expression of person of peace is used, and this person is some, somehow, seems like, discovered through a greeting. So this worthy person, who are they? Well, it's probably a very generous person, almsgiver, and the people actually in the community probably knew who the worthy people were, the almsgivers were, the ones who were very generous. But in our Luke, 
interesting, if you go back in Luke, it almost seems, what's the pattern? What's the strategy? We'll go offer a greeting. Peace to you. And if they respond, somehow that was your indication. But it's interesting, in Matthew actually gives a different chronological order of how things would work. In Matthew 10, verse 7, Jesus says, They were to proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And then they were to find a worthy person. It seems like Matthew's account probably would have been more chronological in terms of strategy. Because clearly going into a town or village and saying to them, the kingdom of God is at hand. And do you want to see that it is? Healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. Okay, that's God's stuff. No man does that. No man can do that. So the message Jesus gave us, super simple. You don't go and give a complicated sermon. All you say is the kingdom of God has come near you. Watch. And the people, especially these Jews, and they're to go to the Jews, they would have looked at it and go, went, wow. This, they know when they see acts of God. <laughs> these are truly acts of God. God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near you. It's in your presence doing a marvelous work. And so in that context, a worthy person or a person of peace would have shown interest clearly in the disciples and probably would have went up to them, approached them and said, please, hey, could you stay at my place? This is what these people are like. I'd love you to stay here. And we get, we get evidence of that, of people doing this with Jesus throughout the Gospels, urging him to come and eat with them. They would have been the, kind of like the person that we see in 2 Kings 4, 8. This lady, I don't know if you ever remember the story, but I'm going to read it. It's really amazing to see the heart of a worthy person, the heart of a person of peace. Who are these people? They're responsive. They're interested. They're engaged. And they, they, they want to connect with you. And he says, when you do this, when you go in these towns, you're going to find and be observant. Watch, because they'll connect with you. And what, look what happens in 2 Kings 4, verse 8 and following. It says, one day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. A wealthy woman lives there, and she urges him, urges him, please, come and eat with us. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a room for him on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, and a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. This lady was a worthy person. This lady was a person of peace. This lady was the kind of person they're talking about. And he says, well, you go there and you'll find people like this. There are people who... who you could, this, this lady, clearly, she, she's... Please, stay. And you see, if you've read your Bible from beginning to end, you'll see several stories where there's these people who are like, please, please stay. Please stay a little longer. Please eat. Please, please let's, let's, let's take care of you. These super hospitable people who just want, they want to give, they want to bless, they want to serve, they want to, they want to do what they can. And the person of peace, the worthy person, would have done this with the, with the disciples. 
They would have taken them in. They would have received them and taken care of whatever was needed for them. Please eat, please. Anything else? Is there enough food? How's your bed? What was your bed last like? Can I get you? Do you need another pillow? You need some water? You know, it's like, please stay longer. This is glorious. And as I said last time we looked at this, we really do see some wisdom here about how we should go forward in evangelism. As we actively do things to, to others and we bless them and we serve them and we, do, we find ways, no matter if you're at work, you're, wherever you're at, you're running into people and, and you can be the person who likes to bless, to give, to help, to serve, or you can be the person who's just self-centered and likes to just do your own thing my own way and everybody else get away. But when you, but when you bless and serve and give and you go to minister in, the, in just ordinary ways, even when you greet people and when you let somebody else in line in front of you or when you help somebody, oh, can I get that door for you? Oh, would it let me help you down the stairs? There's so many, there's a multiple, multiple, multiple ways within life in which all of us can find ways to serve, to bless, to help. Just the little simple things. Oh, please, you sit here. Oh, you first. How about, what would you like? The person who's interested in others finds thousands of ways to bless, give, and serve. But now here's the thing. Observe the reaction. You want to get good at seeing where God is at work. Can you identify people of peace? Can you identify these worthy kinds of people? Can you identify the people? Who are the ones connecting with you? Who are the ones receiving you? Who are the ones opening up to you? Who are the ones who, who seem to be drawn to you? We have got to get good at identifying these people. Because too often we blindly go throughout life and just, let's say we're a servant-oriented, we're just simply servant-oriented, we do these things, but we don't observe and look for where is it that God is at work? Because people, God is at work. And you have to have eyes to see. What are you looking for? Well, who do you connect with? Who's connecting? Who's opening up? Who's receiving? Who's showing interest? You've got to observe that. And then, and then you have to know, okay, where do we go from here? If somebody is being receptive, where do you go from there? Another plug. Come Sunday mornings and you'll find out. Don't have time. So this is Jesus' strategy. Jesus' mission is to reach the world. The harvest is plentiful. He's going. He's sending out, multiplying, extending. He gives them a strategy. But here's the thing. Jesus will, at the end of the day, all will be made right. All, everything that's to be brought into his kingdom will be brought into his kingdom. And those who do not receive him, those who reject him, those who, do not, who, who push him away and throw him away, he says, even that will be all sorted out in the end. Jesus foretells of his judgment. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God was in your presence. And you didn't notice it. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. 
but it will be more bearable than the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. O you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So this here is the judgment Jesus will bring to all those who reject him and his kingdom. He is going to cast outside all those who would not receive him. And the way it works is if they do not receive his people, if they do not receive us, if they do not receive you, they do not receive his message, Jesus says, they didn't receive me. And if they didn't receive me, they neither did they receive the Father in heaven who sent me. A rejection of you, his people, who go bring good tidings of peace and the blessings of the kingdom. You go and serve and you give and you bless. You go throughout life and you declare the good news about Jesus and those who do not receive him. He's offering. He says, go and offer it to everybody. Offer it to them. Extend the kingdom to them. The glories and the goodness of everything. I'm willing to give them everything and let them all know. Let them all know what I've done for them. Let them know so they can hear and know and tell them I'm open to receive them. and Invite them in. Call them in. But know this. There will come a day and a come a time when judgment draws near. You don't know, the invitation isn't eternal. The invitation's temporal. For the moment we die, we find at that moment the door is closed. The offer is ended. And now you must face the judgment. Jesus is a loving, benevolent, generous, awesome king. But to those who reject him, to those who reject his offer, to those who he's calling out to, and to those who turn away from him, well, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. Because Sodom and Gomorrah did not get the offer of grace and peace and blessing from King Jesus and reject it. So the life we live on this planet as Christians, you know, is really, it's about, what is about? About bringing the reign and rule of Jesus to bear on all things. And if we are rejected in the process, it's Jesus who's being rejected and he wants you to know that. Don't think that they're rejecting you. They're rejecting me. However, what the world thinks, you know what the world thinks? when they reject us or reject Jesus. They think that their, reject, their rejection and throwing us out and despising Jesus and his offer, despising his church, despising his goodness, they think that's the trash and that's why you push it out. The goodness and the glory is only in this life. Live this life to the fullest. This is the only thing you have. If you want, the, if you want it all, live it all. Now, this is, the, this is their language. This is the only life you have. You might as well live it up. And so we're offering them an eternal kingdom where you live forever. And this life is actually in comparison. This is your hell. And compared to what's coming. But they reject the offer of Jesus for the now. And in so doing, they find themselves in judgment. But in doing, they think that we're the fools. You'll be thought of as the greatest fool ever. Are you telling me you're willing to forfeit your life now for this? 
We say, yes. They say, you are nuts. This is all you got, man. Live now. Live for here. Live for today. This is it. So their prophets say. Well, I'm sorry to say that one day, Jesus will continue to offer you, but one day you must come before him. And one day, there will be a reckoning. Justice will be paid. And because you reject him, and because you despise him and throw him off, it'll be bad for you. And sure, you might, he might grant you 70, 80, 90 plus years. But one day, you'll have to face him. You have to face him in judgment. And you rejected his offer. His offer of grace and peace and blessing, his kingdom. And that will not be good. But for those, for those who turned to him, for those who received him, to many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To come into the kingdom. And now Jesus says to you in the end, Oh, peace to you, my children, and blessings forevermore. Eternal life, goodness, and pleasures and delight are yours. And those who followed and trusted Jesus will be so thankful for anything that it cost them in this life. Oh, am I so glad that I live for you, Jesus, and for the life that is to come. And I didn't invest everything in this life as if this was everything. But I invested in you and in your, your kingdom. And in fact, on the day, on that day, the last day, all those who did will wish they fought harder, labored more, and extended the kingdom more. Because that's inevitably will be the case. For all of us who receive Jesus, we'll all we'll have wanted to do more. It's like, that, but that happens for, at the end of everything. At the funeral of whoever you love, you'll have wished you've done more. Because at the end, you've always wished you've done more. It's just to have that perspective in the middle is tough. But either way, in the end, Jesus will finally and completely have overcome the darkness. It will be over. It will be finished. All things will have come under his feet. He will reign and rule over all things. And what is amazing in all of this is that Jesus doesn't do it through force like the other kings of this world. He overcomes the darkness with light. He overcomes wickedness with righteousness. He overcomes bloodthirsty murderers with love. He brings life through death. His death. That's how our king conquers. Jesus will extend his kingdom. Jesus will overcome the darkness. And what he's going to do? I'm going to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. I'm going to go into all the world and love and serve and give and bless and call out to them to come in. And as they come in, build them up and strengthen them in their faith and teach them to go out and do likewise. So what should we do? We should pray and seek the Lord of the harvest and ask him, plead with him to raise up leaders who can equip 
workers, people to go out into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Jesus' mission, he is going to overturn this world. He's going to overturn darkness, and every single thing is going to come under his feet. Everything. Even the last enemy, death. And how is he going to do that? Through you. So pray. Pray to that Lord of the harvest. And may God's kingdom come. Amen. Father, we're so thankful, and we praise you that we are a part of your kingdom, that you are doing a mighty work in this world. And I just pray for Redeemer, for us. I pray that you would have mercy on us. You would stir our hearts, that we, our mission and our passion would be for your kingdom, for the, its extension and growth and maturity, that we grow up into Christ, that you would raise up, oh Lord, please we ask you, raise up workers. Raise up a leader, especially for us, who can come and train and equip us for the work of ministry that we might be a body built up and ready to go and extend the kingdom. Please, O oh Lord. No, we, we know that you will hear our prayers. We know that you will answer us. Because you promised, and we ask you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.